Okay, welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. I'd like to welcome our newest members, Sun, Abhinav, Ray, and Peter. Members get access to members-only podcasts, and this week we talked about the Celtic migration to Britain, or actually, whether or not there was a Celtic migration to Britain. Next time, we're going to be talking about the Druids, so that should be fun. So if you're interested in becoming a member and getting access to these extra podcasts, you can head over to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and click show your support and follow the instructions over there. Okay, so this episode is going to be all about listener questions and my answers to said listener questions. So let's get this thing going. All right, first question. How did communication around the empire work? It's a great question. As you might imagine, communication was quite difficult. I mean, there was no text messaging, there were no IMs, there's no telephone, there wasn't even a Pony Express. So generally, what was used to transfer messages from place to place were slaves. Slaves were vitally important for the communication of the empire. Now, if a message was really, really important, it was super secret, or the route was dangerous, or both, there might be an armed escort or something of the like. But generally, slaves were the text messengers of the day. All right. What are the three single incidents that were the biggest turning points in British history? Single incidents, huh? Well, 1066 is an easy answer to that, I suppose. A massive amount of events flow from that decision, conflict with France not being the least of it. If there wasn't a 1066, and of course I'm talking about the Battle of Hastings here, not just the year, if there wasn't the Battle of Hastings, there wouldn't be the Plantagenet dynasty that soon followed. And from that dynasty, we got the English common law, claims to half of France, Magna Carta, troublesome priests, and all manner of other things. So the Battle of Hastings at 1066 really was a watershed moment. The single incidents part of this question does make it pretty tough for me, though. I mean, take the Interregnum, for example. That was huge, but it wasn't really a single incident. I suppose upon reflection, the execution of Charles I was pretty huge. I mean, continental Europe was marching towards or fully embracing autocratic monarchies, and here we were going the other way and killing our king. But at the same time, we were propping up someone who was, well, pretty autocratic. But I think that was a pretty huge moment in British history. For the first time, it wasn't conquest, neglect, or creepy torture, I'm looking at you, Isabella and Roger Mortimer, that led to the death of a king and the replacement of the monarch. No, this time the people had enough and decided to kill the king and get rid of the entire institution while they were at it. That, of course, was easier said than done, and pretty soon we had a monarchy again. But still, that was an immense moment in British history, and reinforced something that largely has been a theme in British history. While autocracies might be acceptable elsewhere in the world, the Britons demanded more equality. Or at least, the barons did. Or at least, the barons wanted a voice in what was going on. Which I guess leads me to the third answer. It's hard to claim it was a single incident, since it was re-signed and expanded so often, but King John signing Magna Carta at Runnymede was enormous. Not just for Britain, but for the entire Western world. Alright, this is a bit of a tangent off the question, but Magna Carta is why I say that King John was better for Britain than King Richard. And I know everybody loves Richard, I get it, but I really think that's because of Sean Connery and that 
awful Robin Hood movie. But Richard really only visited England twice. He had no interest in the English, and he put the country massively in debt, and he died in an incredibly stupid way. Honestly, I think the only reason that people loved Richard so much was because he wasn't really their ruling. He was just out on crusade. So he had this aura of holiness about him, and anything that was done to fund his personal hunger for glory wasn't really his fault as far as the people were concerned. It was the fault of those who ruled in his name, such as John. So yeah, I'm not a huge fan of Richard. That isn't to say that John was a great person, though. He wasn't. He was a Plantagenet. None of them were that great of people. But I think he also gets the short end of the stick. If you're living in the English-speaking world, you more than likely owe many, if not most, of the human rights that you enjoy, not to the virtues of King Richard, but instead to the vices of King John. If England was ruled by one of his brothers, it's possible that the barons wouldn't have been driven to rebellion. And with no rebellion, there's no Magna Carta. And with no Magna Carta, there's no advancement of human rights. Even the American Bill of Rights owe a lot to King John. He's almost like a founding father, but maybe like a founding grandfather. Anyway, back to the questions. I got a lot of questions about book recommendations. Now, the issue here is that it really depends on your reading level, as well as your prior knowledge of history, not to mention your interest in history. Now, personally, I have a great deal of love for the history of the English-speaking peoples by Winston Churchill. It was one of the first series of books that I read that gave me a real solid overview of British history. Now, if you decide to read it, you have to keep in mind that Mr. Churchill has his biases, not to mention that some of his information is outdated. And he certainly doesn't go into as much detail as I would like. Honestly, if he did, it would be about a 300-volume series. But if you want to read something that gives you an idea of the general lay of the land of British history, I highly recommend his series. If you're interested in the Romano-British period and want something a little bit more dense and academic and whatnot, David Mattingly's An Imperial Possession is a fantastic read. So is Peter Solway's Roman Britain. Really, there are just a wealth of excellent books out there for every reading level and interest level. But as always, beware of taking on faith any book that purports to condense a massive section of history into just one small book. More often than not, they remove the nuance. And much like with footnotes, all the important bits are in the nuances. Frankly, I think a great deal of misconceptions and misunderstandings come from ignoring nuances and skipping over footnotes. But that's a topic for another time. Another thing that's important to keep in mind when selecting and reading a history book is bias. We've all got them. And thankfully, many good historians do a pretty good job of making their biases easy to spot. So if you're reading a layman's history book, make sure you read the foreword. More often than not, you'll get a good sense of why he or she is writing it, and what biases are in play. Anyway, my recommendations are Churchill, Mattingly, and Solway. I hope this answer helps. Okay. What is the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? I hate to answer a question with a question, but African or European? I've received a lot of questions asking me to tell you more about myself. I assume what you mean is that you want to know my educational background. Well... I'm an attorney, or at least I was. Like many in America, I'm unemployed. 
It turns out that even people with doctorates are getting hit by this economy. So while I was sitting around feeling sorry for myself, I decided to do something productive. I've always enjoyed the tales of history, but hated how it was taught, so I decided to do something about it and began researching British history. And one thing that lawyers tend to be good at is research. People think that we argue for a living, but we don't generally. We research and we write. Now, I was a litigator, meaning that I argued in court more than most attorneys, but even so, the time I spent in court was a tiny fraction compared to the time I spent researching and writing. So I turned that training towards history. I grabbed secondary sources on the subject that I was interested in, read them, then looked at their footnotes and citations and whatnot, pulled those sources, and then read those. Then I would read their citations, and then I'd read their citations, and then I'd read translations of primary sources, and I'd check out other translations of primary sources. Just reading, 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 reading. And the nice thing is that while many secondary sources needed to be purchased, many primary sources are freely available either online or at the library. So I guess that's a long way of saying that while I'm not a doctorate in history, I'm not uneducated, and I use that training in putting together this podcast. If you really want to know just in general what I'm like, I'm from the UK, though functionally I'm American since I went through American schools. I'm a geek. I play board games. I'm actually in the process of designing one about the Wars of the Roses for fun. When I was younger, I wanted to be a writer, and now I think that I should have become a history professor, though recently I was talked out of it by the head of the history department at a university here in town because apparently there are less jobs for professors than there are for lawyers. So I guess I'll just keep on doing this and see if I can find a way to support myself while doing it. I'm married to a wonderful, beautiful woman, and I'll spare you from me elaborating on how great she is, but she's pretty great. And let's see, I've, I've got a dog named Kerouac, named after the famous author because he reminded me of him and also of one of his characters, Dean Moriarty. Kerouac was found on the side of the road, toothless, hairless, tailless, and homeless. He loves whiskey. And actually, his theft of my whiskey made me realize that I picked the right name. And even to this day, I have to be careful about where I put my glass or I might find him with his nose in it. He's a triple cancer survivor. He's missing a leg. He has a cauliflower ear, which you'd think would make him look fierce, but actually, it kind of just makes him look cute. He's cross-eyed and a little blind. He has a skin condition. He's got a pretty nasty abdominal tumor that's uh, killing him, actually. And he's the sweetest dog I've ever had. And now I hope my wife doesn't listen to this podcast because I just spoke at length about how much I love my dog and didn't mention very much about her at all. But my wife is fantastic. So is my dog. All right, I think that's enough personal information, and I think I'm going to get in trouble for this. So let's move on to the next question. How did you put the podcast together? Well, equipment-wise, I use a blue brand Snowball USB microphone and a pop filter. Snowball is an excellent microphone if you're interested in doing a podcast of your own. It does a great job of filtering out a lot of the background noise automatically, such as Kerouac panting or drinking water, and only capturing my voice. The pop filter is basically a piece of black mesh on a hoop. This is very important for recording because it allows me to speak closely to the microphone without having you being forced to listen to me basically blowing in your ear. Now, why do you want to be close to a mic? Basically, because it makes it sound better. For example, here I am talking about a foot and a half away from the microphone. And here I am talking up close to it. See what I mean? 
If you're up close to the mic, you can catch a lot more of the bass notes of your voice. So unless you use a pop filter, you're either breathing into the listener's ear like a pervert, or you sound tinny. Now for software, I use Audacity, and I had all kinds of really nice things to say about Audacity as I was recording this podcast. And then the damn thing went and crashed on me right as I was saving, and I'm actually having to record this all over again. So now I'm just kind of grouchy about Audacity. Now, once you get your mic and your recording program, potentially Audacity, but beware of the save feature, uh, you're going to need somewhere to host your files, and you're going to need to make an RSS feed. Hosting is pretty cheap. It's easily found online. And to create your feed, at least what I use is WordPress, and I use a plugin called PodPress, and it makes the creation of an RSS feed super easy. Anyway, if you're looking into making your own podcast, you don't need a super expensive setup. You just need something to say, the arrogance to think that people will want to hear it, and the stubbornness to keep doing it after you get your first hate mail. And I recommend that when you get hate mail, which you probably will, it seems like everybody does, um, do what I do with it. Read it in a fake German accent. It makes it a lot more fun. So basically, if you've got the chutzpah to want to go and do a podcast, the rest of the stuff, like the mic, the music, and whatnot, is all just window dressing. I mean, you can find plenty of music available online with Creative Commons and things like that, but uh, you really just need something to say and the will to say it. That's about it. Now, as for research, I think I already answered that above. I read secondary sources and then start drilling down. An old adage in law school, which is generally true in any academic work, is that Everything good is in the footnotes and the endnotes. Always read the footnotes and endnotes. Are you listening to this, Zoe? I promise you it will help you in your AP history class. Footnotes and endnotes. Don't skip them. All right, what other podcasts would you recommend? Well, I religiously listen to Stuff You Should Know and The Memory Palace. Frankly, if I had to pick two influences, it would be those two podcasts. I like these podcasts so much that sometimes when I'm doing QC of an episode, I start to feel like I'm getting too close to the sad tones of Nate DeMeo or the irreverent delivery of Chuck, and I have to start reining it back in. Now, oddly, The History of Rome by Mike Duncan and 12 Byzantine Rulers by Lars Brownworth weren't on my radar until after I started this project. I started listening to them since I had so many listeners recommend them, and they are fantastic lectures, by the way, and you should probably check them out. And now I actually listen to Mike's work whenever I'm not reading or preparing for my own podcast. But the first podcast to really catch my attention and make me want to do this myself were Stuff You Should Know and The Memory Palace. So I guess those are my top two. What are the three most significant impacts that Britain has had on the world? My birth, the founding of Liverpool Football Club in 1892, and the invention of the steak and kidney pie. You're not buying it, are you? All right, well, let's go with Magna Carta as the first answer for the reasons we've already discussed. The second answer will be Henry II's invention of English common law. Even America uses it. English common law is a lot more important than you'd think. It allowed for a quickly evolving and developing body of legal work and an intricate set of precedents. Thanks to English common law, you've got an adversarial system where the two sides get to battle it out and the judge is playing the referee. And the outcome of that battle could alter the legal landscape for the entire country, depending on how far it goes. And granted, that's quite an evolution from what Henry II set up. 
but it all flowed from his initial idea of English common law. I think that's pretty incredible, and having a legal system that can quickly adapt to a variety of situations has had an immense impact on the Western world, at least where that legal system is dominated. And for my final answer, I think I'm going to have to go with colonization. I know that Britain wasn't the only game in town when it came to colonization, but I'd be remiss if I didn't count it among the top three. The idea that the sun should never set on the empire drastically changed the destiny of countless cultures and civilizations. So I think that qualifies as a significant impact upon the world. Okay, which period are you looking forward to covering the most? That's easy for me. Henry II and the dawn of the Plantagenets. So much changed, and so quickly. Especially regarding law and whatnot, and considering that I'm a lawyer, I'm really going to enjoy talking about some of the changes that were put in place and how they affected things in the future. I mean, I'm really excited about to get into that point. But I'm also really excited about the Anglo-Saxon period. In particular, talking about the development of the English language and the culture from that period, people usually don't think about it, but our language tells such an interesting tale. The different languages that were blended into it represent the esteem and the status of the cultures that brought those words onto our island. Take, for example, the words craft and skill. One is Anglo-Saxon, and the other is Viking. And you can still see the remnants of the prejudice in how those words are used. Or look at pig and pork. One is Anglo-Saxon, and the other is French. You use the Anglo-Saxon word when you're farming the animal, because that's what the Anglo-Saxons did. You use the French word when you're eating it, because that's the only contact that the French nobility had with the animal. That's also the same with cow and beef, for example. But sometimes there aren't even competing words and they still tell a story. Take Welsh, for example. It's an Anglo-Saxon word. The Welsh don't call their country Wales. It's Cymru. The Anglo-Saxons named it Wales because Welsh meant foreigners in Anglo-Saxon. So Wales basically meant foreign territory, which is kind of cheeky when you think about it considering the fact that the Anglo-Saxons were foreigners. The Welsh were the original Britons. Anyway, there are interesting stories like that with many of the words in our language, and the farther that we get into the story of the island, the more we'll be able to uncover. This question comes from buyviagra.com. Are you the man you want to be? Well, there's always room for improvement, I guess. And I certainly would like to be employed. But I think on the whole, I'm doing all right. I mean, I'm enjoying this podcast. Thanks for asking. All right, another listener asks, what sources do you use for your research? Oh, man. That's a huge question since I seem to be forever cross-referencing things and reading parts of this book or that book. I guess the big ones for the Romano-British period that I've been reading, at least the authors of them, are Caesar, Strabo, Dio, Tacitus, Churchill, Shepard Frere, Peter Solway, Guy Delabouillet, David Mattingly, T.W. Potter, Stephen Johnson, Henry Hubert, Alistair Moffat, Francis Pryor, Peter Ellis, W.A. Cummings, jeez. The list goes on and on, but those are a few of them, and they're a great place for you to start if you want to go and read some books on history. Could you tell us some of your favorite film depictions of British history, as you alluded to in the podcast? Did I? I mean, I have some guilty pleasures, but I wouldn't call them favorites. I suppose The Gathering Storm by HBO is pretty fantastic, 
But I'm guessing that you want historical films set in periods much farther back than that. I don't know. I'm ashamed to say that I still enjoy Braveheart, despite the incredible lack of accuracy. Generally, I don't have favorite British history films. I just tend to be disappointed. And not the kind of disappointed that leaves you going, oh, that's a shame. But rather the judgmental sort of disappointment, like, your mother and I are very disappointed in you. For example, I saw Ironsides recently, which stars Paul Giamatti. Haven't heard of it? I hadn't either, which should have been enough to give me pause, right? I mean, Giamatti is a pretty big name in Hollywood these days, and he was playing King John, so... I mean, there should have been some kind of press about it. Well, I won't spoil it for you, but it's not a good movie. I felt the same way about the new Robin Hood movie, actually. It was much closer to reality than that laughable Kevin Costner film, I suppose. You know, the one where Professor Snape canceled Christmas and the bad guy from The Crow couldn't figure out why a spoon would be worse than a knife for cutting out someone's heart. That one. And actually, I think I would have liked the new Robin Hood if it wasn't for the heavy-handed Chosen One stuff. I mean, I get that Magna Carta was huge. I keep on talking about how huge it was. And so I don't blame Ridley Scott for wanting to include it somehow. But did Robin Hood need to be the Maximus of the Magna Carta? Also, if Ridley Scott did his research, he would have realized that this wasn't about the rights of the peasants. It was about the barons. Over time, Magna Carta would expand and whatnot, but what King John signed was not about the peasants. What makes Magna Carta special was how it expanded from that point, but it didn't come out of Runnymede fully formed. Far from it. But the absolute worst film on British history that I've ever seen was about Boudicca. It's called Warrior Queen, and it stars Alex Kingston, uh, the lady who was in uh, ER. I don't know what else she's been in. You can find it on Netflix. Now, I went into this with my eyes wide open. I knew it wasn't going to be good, but I didn't realize how bad it was going to be. And then the Romans arrived on the scene, wearing wool sweaters that were painted silver. And I'm not exaggerating. As they arrived, a friend of mine and I both stared in shock and shouted, Are they wearing foil hats? And you know what? They were. They were wearing gold foil hats that crinkled a little bit as they marched. But you know what? The production quality was so bad that making fun of it just seems mean. So I think I'll stop here. So here's a related question that was submitted. What British TV slash movies do you like? Have you seen the new Sherlock series? If you haven't, you really should fix that. It's fantastic. I'm not 100% behind the casting choices for Moriarty, but apart from that, I absolutely love it. I was also a huge fan of Extras until it got canceled, and I actually really missed that show. So those are probably my top two. Who are your 10 favorite Brits and why? I was initially going to answer with Kenny Daglish, Steven Gerrard, and Jamie Carragher. And while they certainly deserve to be on that list, since Liverpool is the greatest team in the Premiership, I can't really put together a list like that. I've been thinking about this answer for a while, pretty much since I first got it, and I just don't think I can narrow it down. It would be like asking me what the 10 greatest events in history were, without any qualifier. I mean, there are so many mitigating circumstances and special situations that make each person unique. So how do you measure them? What metric do you use to rank one above another? I don't think I have favorite individuals when it comes to history. You know what I like? 
narratives. And for narratives, you need a variety of characters. If it wasn't for Velocatus, the story of Cartamandua and Venutius wouldn't be nearly as fun. Without Cartamandua and Venutius, the story of Caractacus wouldn't be as fun. I mean, look at Henry II's story. Things really start to get interesting when Eleanor shows up, and her story wouldn't be nearly as fun without her ex-husband, the King of France. See what I mean? For me, it isn't about focusing on one person, but rather about the story that flows from those people. I know that sucks as an answer, but this really is a hard question, and I don't think it has an answer. I mean, I really like the story of Henry II, but was he one of my favorite Brits? Did he rank above Alfred? I don't know. Hell, the story of Ethelred the Unready is tragic and a great tale in itself, so should he be on that list even though he was an awful king? What about the Venerable Bede and the fact that in addition to being absolutely in love with history and being a pious man, he was also a foodie? See what I mean? I I just kind of love history. I don't have favorites. Who are your favorite British authors slash what are your favorite works of British literature? Now, for reasons that I cannot explain, this is much easier for me to answer. Number one on my list is Jeanette Winterson. She's my favorite contemporary British author. When I was younger and I read The Passion, I desperately wanted to be a writer. That book blew my mind. It read more like poetry than it did a novel. It begged to be read out loud, and every word was clearly chosen because of lyrical qualities. Until I read Winterson, I always thought of poetry in one camp and novels in the other. I didn't realize that you could write a novel that was meant to be read aloud. The musicality of that book still amazes me today. And I would read you a passage from it, but I don't think we have a ton of literature nerds here, so I don't want to bore them and have them stop the podcast. Now, I don't know if Churchill's works count as literature, but as I mentioned earlier, his four-volume History of the English-Speaking Peoples was the first thing that really opened my eyes to how history could and should be taught. Now, sometimes he can be ponderous, but on the whole, his voice comes through his writing so strongly that you can't help but be transported when you read him. So for purely sentimental reasons, he's on the list too. I know I haven't mentioned Shakespeare, Dickens, Austin, and the like. And my third writer, I'm sure, is going to have people rolling their eyes. But bear with me, I have a reason behind this. Tolkien. But not for the reasons you think. It's because he virtually created an entire genre out of thin air. Who else can you think of that's done that? Sure, his style is dry, and the complaints regarding his style are well-founded, But the other complaint, that the storyline is a standard trope and heavy-handed, is exactly why he's so great. It's a standard trope because he invented the genre. And yes, I know he basically ripped off a variety of myths from other cultures, but still, when you go to a bookstore and you see row after row of fantasy books crammed in the back, all of that was thanks to one author and his serialized stories that he was writing and sending home to his son during World War I. That's pretty incredible, if you ask me. What are the five most quintessentially British music acts of all time? (laughs) I have no idea. I mean, U2, David Bowie, and The Who are my top musical acts of all time. But are they quintessentially British? I couldn't say. I love the Sex Pistols, and I think that they managed to capture the mood of the time. But were they quintessentially British? Maybe, for their time. 
I don't know. What I do know is that the Spice Girls should not be on that list. But maybe Tom Jones should be. After all, he's one of the few Welshmen that almost everyone's heard of. And the last question comes from legendary listener Tim. He asks, how much more does Yorkshire rule than Wales? Jeez, Tim, you're really hitting me hard with this leading question, aren't you? But I did say that people could ask anything they wanted. So here we go. I suppose that Yorkshire puddings are pretty fantastic. And whenever I make a Sunday roast, I also make Yorkshire puddings. And I never make leeks. So I guess that's one advantage that Yorkshire has over Wales. My diet, and pretty soon my high cholesterol, probably. Alright, so that's all the questions I had. Now next week, we're going to continue with our story of Carousius and his British Empire. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, go ahead and email me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Or you can head over to thebritishhistorypodcast.com, or you can join the discussion at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash britishhistory. Thank you very much for all your questions, for listening, and being such supportive and engaged listeners. Until next time.